0: So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He goes out at night to inspect the wall because he needed to be aware of the details and develop a plan of action. And after he's gathered the facts, Nehemiah then goes to rally the troops. And when he approaches the people, he does it in the right way. And it's not by blaming or calling out people because using blame or criticism to motivate usually just leaves us with a mess to clean up. Instead of this, Nehemiah simply identified the problem, and then he focused on the solutions. And what was the response? Well, the people agreed, and they began to prepare for work. But we talked about last week that opposition began immediately. Sometimes you start a project, and it's going great at the beginning, and eventually opposition comes around, and you have troubles. But Nehemiah had to deal with opposition right off the bat. So the first thing that he did in dealing with this criticism was Nehemiah evaluated the critics. He asked, are they listening to God? Or does what, they, does what they are saying match up with the word of God? And it didn't. So he moved on to the next thing. And he found the true reason for the criticism. And we talked about the three men who were his constant opponents in building the wall. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And their opposition came because the people in Jerusalem were actually accomplishing something. If the people were weak or Jerusalem wasn't defended, they were fine because it gave them security. But when the people of Jerusalem began to work together towards something, that was a threat to them. And that was the reason they began to criticize the project. The third thing that Nehemiah did was he responded with a firm answer from the outset. He didn't waste time dealing with criticism, or blowing up the situation. He just addressed it and got back to work. Nehemiah faced his critics with prayer and persistence, and he trusted God to take care of his problems. And when the opposition became worse, Nehemiah responded by setting a watch to protect the city. His response escalated as well. In addition to external strife, Nehemiah also had to deal with problems within the group of people he was leading. And anybody who's ever had to deal with interpersonal problems, say amen. Amen. There's a few of us who've had to deal with that. The fact is that we're all living, breathing humans. We all have opinions, and the person sitting next to you probably has different opinions, and those are going to clash sometimes. So sometimes we're just not going to get along together. And Nehemiah dealt with these problems. The main problem that he dealt with was discouragement. So what does he do to combat discouragement? Well, the first thing that he did was he unified the families. Because our homes should be a basic source of encouragement. And strong, united families supporting each other are a force to be reckoned with. And Nehemiah had the wisdom to understand this. So he united the families of Jerusalem to work together. The second thing that he did was he lifted their eyes spiritually. He reminded them how great God is. We looked at his speech last week. He calls them together and reminds them, Remember the Lord who did all of these wonderful things, who brought us out of Egypt. We've heard of how he parted the Red Sea. Remember how great our God is. Nehemiah magnified God to the people by reminding them of his words, his promises, and of who he was. Remember who you are serving. Remember what he has promised us. He will not fail and will not go back on his word. We also saw in Nehemiah's response to sin. That Nehemiah confronted sin with rebuke and with the word of God. And then he outlined a plan to stop and correct what was happening. Because a prompting from God to deal with sin and error must be followed through immediately. Otherwise, we end up tolerating sin, and it takes root in our lives. The end result was that peace returned and the wall was built. Nehemiah's time as a builder organizing the project of building the wall gives us more character bricks to add in building the walls of our life. We learned to focus on the solutions. Nehemiah motivated people By lifting their eyes. Yes, we have to identify the problem, but our focus should be on the solution. We learned how to deal with opposition, criticism, and discouragement, and how to take care of sin. Nehemiah demonstrates for us how to deal with sin both in a group and in our own lives. So this week, we're moving on to the next phase of Nehemiah's life. And this week, he finally gets some good news. I feel like he's just been having one bad day after another. But this week, Nehemiah gets a promotion. What good news that is. He became the governor of Judah. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, we read about it. He says, Moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, even unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, he does the math for us, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. And we're going to go into a little bit what the rest of that verse is talking about at the end. But after so many problems to deal with and so much adversity, there's now a reward for God's faithful servant. And up to this point, we've seen Nehemiah's response to adversity because that's all he's had to deal with. He's had to motivate people to build a wall. He's had to keep these three guys who keep bugging them away from the wall. He's had to deal with interpersonal problems in his group. He's just had a lot of problems to deal with. But it's just as important to examine his response to a promotion as it is to as we examined his, his response to adversity, because adversity is a painful teacher. And our character will be revealed in times of trouble. But sometimes we forget that our character is also revealed in advancement. Thomas Carlyle, who is a Scottish writer and historian, wrote this, Adversity is hard on a man. But for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. He's saying for every one man who can be trusted with a promotion, there's one hundred who will be faithful in troubled times. And it sounds like Carlyle thought that prosperity could be more difficult than adversity. And this kind of goes against our way of thinking. But sometimes advancement leads to pride, which then leads to the idea that we are self-sufficient, that we can do it on our own. And this isn't the only uh, temptation of advancement. This is just an example. But Asaph gives some advice concerning pride in psalms chapter 75 verses 5 to 7 in verse 5 he says lift not up your horn on high speak not with a stiff neck he's saying stiff neck is unmoving or if you think of somebody who has their nose in the air who's very proud of themselves speak not with a stiff neck verse 6 for promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south well where does it come from let's read verse 7 But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. This is a reminder not to become puffed up with pride because God is the one behind our blessings and our advancement. And the world tries to attribute success to many things, to looks, to talent, smarts, to luck. There's any number of things. And people are gifted. Who are they gifted by? They're gifted by God. And it is God's hand that lifts up and brings down. So let's see if Nehemiah follows Asaph's advice. In verse 14, the beginning of it, we can see Nehemiah's response to becoming governor. It's pretty no-nonsense. It's kind of like Nehemiah himself. Neh, they appointed me governor, I served 12 years, that's about it. You know, he's just, it's pretty much summed up in one word, and that is Acceptance that Nehemiah was willing to accept whatever the Lord had for him, be that blessing or difficulty. Because just like he trusted the Lord to be with him during the hard times, Nehemiah knew he could rely on the Lord to be his strength in new responsibilities. And if you think about it, this was a pretty big jump because almost overnight, Nehemiah goes from being a builder to being a governor. So let's just imagine if a construction worker or a grade school teacher or really anybody else with very little political experience, it's funny that we're talking about this when Donald Trump just became our president this week, (laughs) but anyone with little political experience being elected the governor of Illinois as a writing candidate. Like, I didn't even know that guy was on the ballot, but suddenly this no-name person is the governor. This was a very intimidating promotion for Nehemiah. Sometimes in the face of opportunities that seem larger than our abilities, we will shrink back from taking them on. But God wants to use us in situations that stretch us. So we learn to rely on and to access his strength instead of our own because we all have our limits. If you think of the picture that I get in my mind is of silly putty. If you've ever had kids who had silly putty and I'm sure you've had to deal with it in hair and clothes and everything else it's a wonderful invention you should get it for all of your kids and grandkids because everyone needs to experience silly putty at one point in their life but at some point usually what we would do is take silly putty and you start stretching it because it will stretch and stretch and stretch but eventually it reaches its limit and it breaks it'll become really thin and break or it'll just tear apart and our human abilities, just like that silly putty, our wisdom, our talents, everything that we have just in ourselves, they will reach a limit as well, and they will break. But when I partner with a limitless God, then tell me, what is impossible? I have my limits, but he has none. So when we partner together, there is nothing that we can't do. We must learn to set God-sized goals, not my size Goals. You know, they have my-size Barbie doll or fun-size candy bars. That's not the kind of goals that we're setting. We're setting God-sized goals. We do our part to prepare and fulfill these goals. And then we trust God to make up the difference, to stretch the silly putty further than it can stretch on its own. Now, this is within reason, obviously. If you don't have a lick of musical experience... Like myself, and you get up and go to the piano to play for service because God is stretching me and He will make up the difference. Not that. That's not what we're talking about. It must be within reason. What we mean is do our part, step out in faith, and then God enables us to do what He's called us to do through His Spirit. In accepting this promotion, Nehemiah was confronted with four challenges that will face all of us in the situation of promotion. The first one was he had the opportunity of taking advantage of privileges. If we go back to verse 14, at the end of that verse, after he says, I had served for 12 years, he mentions this little quick sentence I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. Well, what does that mean? Well, The governor would receive a food allowance for official entertaining purposes. He's an important person, a political figure. He gets a certain amount of money to spend on his food. It's kind of like a banquet given by a state representative. And Nehemiah had the opportunity to take advantage of this expense account. Nobody would know if he used this money for him personally or for his banquets that he was having to throw. No one was gonna know. It was just money that was set for him. And probably no one would have said anything about him taking advantage of this. But would it be beneficial to all of the people that were in Jerusalem, or just a few? Nehemiah never lost his control. He never used his privileges for his own benefit. It was there, he could do whatever he wanted with it, but he never lost his self-control. And we see here in Nehemiah's character that he was a man who could be trusted, because a promotion usually results in increased responsibility and decreased accountability. And we're very quick to ask the Lord for blessings and promotions. We're quick to go after these things and we should be. But before we ask for these things, we should first ask if we can be trusted with them. More importantly than this is what I want, is this what I need? Is this what I can handle? Because think about it, not only would there be an increased opportunity to do good, but there's also increased opportunity to do evil or to lose focus on the eternal things that are truly important. For example, more work responsibilities might mean less time with your family or less time for your walk with God. More money can lead to greed, selfishness, and materialism. So am I telling you not to seek promotion after I just told you to dream big and trust God? I don't know what they're doing in there, but I would really like to be a part of it. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of fun. They probably have some silly putty in there. We are to dream big and trust God and seek promotions because there is a flip side. An increased salary could mean more opportunities to be a good steward, to pay bills, hallelujah, take care of family, or anything else that you need more money for, and to invest in the kingdom of God. You can be a support to the kingdom of God financially. More responsibilities at work might mean more opportunities to witness to others or more ways that God can bless your company through you. I'm not saying that we should avoid promotion, but I am saying that we should take a painfully honest look at ourselves and ask if we are ready to be promoted. If we can handle it, God, do you trust me? Or what do you trust me with? What boundaries do I have against sin personally? What boundaries would I need if God blessed me the way that I want? And those are difficult questions. They can't be answered right off the bat. They require some thinking and some really honest evaluation. But if we take the time to build the character of Christ, we will be people that he can trust with a promotion. Like Nehemiah, we must be consistent and faithful in our walk with God, have a reliable work ethic, and access the wisdom of God by studying his word. Nehemiah didn't become all that he was by himself. He became what he was by partnering with God. And if you want to mimic the character and achievements of another person, it makes sense to mimic what they did. So following the patterns of Nehemiah's life will make us faithful workers who can be trusted with both the difficulties and the blessings that we face in life. The second temptation that Nehemiah ran into was the temptation to build his own empire or to make his own name great. Nehemiah treated his appointment as a privilege and a position of trust Because in the end, it was a gift from God. And Nehemiah didn't try to manipulate that gift to his own advantage. And again, we see in Nehemiah's actions that he was willing to fully trust God and place his life and his accomplishments in God's hands. All that God gave Nehemiah, Nehemiah then offered it back to God to use for his kingdom. I think it's kind of like a kid who gets a puzzle as a gift. I don't know if any of you like putting together puzzles. I really do. And if you get a huge puzzle as a gift, and then invite the giver to complete the puzzle with you, that's sort of like when God gives us a gift, that then we don't just run over and keep it to ourselves and try to do it ourselves, but we offer. Why don't you join with me, and let's put this together together. Let's work this out together. You be part of it with me. That's the picture that I get of offering our lives back to God, is giving the giver a chance to be part of the project. Nehemiah's life can be compared against the life of another Old Testament character who did give in to the temptation to establish his own kingdom. His name was Absalom, and he was the son of King David, and we can find his story in 2 Samuel. And Absalom had it all. If you read about him, he was a prince for starters. He was born to an incredible position. He was handsome. He had a magnetic personality. People really liked this guy. And externally, he seemed like a great guy, like a great role model. But internally, Absalom was a rebel who was waiting for his moment to strike. So David promotes his son to court when you're in court, you act as an advisor to the king or to the people. The people bring their problems, and you would give judgment on it. And Absalom uses his charisma and his new position to gather support. And eventually, he overthrows the government and drives his own father from the city. He has enough support to send King David out of Jerusalem on the run for his life. And unfortunately... Absalom's story ends with his murder at the hands of his father's officers while he is on the run. It's a sad, sad ending to a life that was full of promise. But if we forget whose kingdom we are building, we will build in vain. Because we labor for eternal things that do not perish. So like Nehemiah, we must humble ourselves and seek the kingdom of God instead of seeking our own empire. The third thing that Nehemiah faced was pressure to conform to previous policies. Now, sometimes the precedents or the standards that are set before us are helpful. They give us a guide. We had the presidential inauguration this week, as we mentioned, and no matter your political persuasion, I think we can all agree that the display of democracy is pretty impressive. They kept saying over and over on the news on the news um, broadcast, "This is the peaceful transfer." of power because America at her founding set a precedent that government here was going to be different from anywhere else. It was revolutionary, you could say. There was a peaceful transfer of power was unheard of at that time because if you wanted power, you started a war. You got your army together and you went next door and invaded the neighbor. That was how you got more power and more land. But this precedent still guides us today. You know what? We're not going to have to fight to figure out who's going to be our next leader. We're going to have a peaceful transfer. And this is how we transfer leadership or power in America. So that precedent is very helpful. I think we can all agree it's great. Every four years we don't have to go to war with each other to figure out who's going to be the next president. Literal war, I guess. Some people might think we do go to war with each other trying to figure out the next president. But we're not literally fighting each other, trying to decide who's going to be our next leader. However, in Nehemiah's day, the policies and the precedents or the standards that were there, they weren't helpful. In fact, today we we would call them illegal. Not just that they weren't helpful, they weren't even legal. They were biblically and morally wrong. And we see them outlined in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 15. And he writes, But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. Even the servants of the people in charge had control over the people of Jerusalem. But so did not I because of the fear of God. What he's describing here is illegal taxing and seizure. There's all kinds of modern problems in the book of Nehemiah. The governors would overtax the people, and they would take their possessions to pad their own bank accounts and benefit themselves. He said in this verse, the governor's servants had it better than the people who were living free. And there was probably some pressure on Nehemiah to carry on the way we've always done it. Well, Nehemiah, this is the way it works around here. I know you're new to this. So let me just explain to you how we've always done things. But we see his answer in the end of verse 15. But so did not I because of the fear of God. I didn't do it. Those simple words show us so much character and courage. We don't know how many people he had to stand up to. We don't know how long he had to stand up to them. But he just didn't do it. The guys before me did all this illegal stuff. Some people wanted me to continue it but I didn't do it. Nehemiah's response also shows us his integrity. Probably no one expected anything differently from him, and he could have continued unquestioned, but he didn't. He had too much integrity to stand by and let this illegal procedure happen. Nehemiah kept his thinking right in the face of extreme pressure. He knew in the end he was going to answer to God who had promoted him. And he purposed to do what was right and end the corruption. And Nehemiah didn't let the pressures of his job come between him and God. Because pressures can be placed between us and God and draw us away, or pressures can press us closer to God. We have one of two options. Will you put it between you and God, or will you put it on your side and let it press you closer to the one who can help you? The pressures of Nehemiah's job were catalysts to propel him closer to God. And so should our pressures and cares be used to draw us closer to God. The verse says, cast your cares on him. Casting our cares and then trusting him to be our strength. God ordained and anointed Nehemiah to be a leader like none before him. Verse 16 of chapter 5 says, yea, also I continued in the work of this wall. I was right there with him. Even when I was the governor, neither bought we any land. And all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Nehemiah took no breaks. He and his house, I know I'm the governor, but guys, we're all going back down to the wall tomorrow and we're going to help them build. And I'm not worried about buying land or advancing myself. We're going to do what God has sent me here to do. Nehemiah's character and his work ethic made him the perfect choice to be the governor of Jerusalem. That would be pretty cool. If Nehemiah is elected governor and the next day he's still beside you putting bricks on the wall. Hey, dude, the most important guy in all of Judah is right beside me working on the wall. What a powerful motivator and what an inspiring picture that must have been for all of the people at Jerusalem. The fourth thing that Nehemiah dealt with was the opportunity to be sidetracked in his promotion. He never lost his focus on building the wall. Again, he was right there day after day. And he had plenty of opportunities to be distracted. Verses 17 through 18 of chapter 5 detail some of his responsibilities. Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers, beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. I had 150 people at dinner, plus some more people Every night. Verse 18. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me. And once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor because the bondage was heavy upon this people. He's outlining us for us his political responsibilities. He was a very busy guy. He had to take care of a lot of people. But he didn't let his responsibilities sidetrack him. Verse 18, in the end, it says the bondage was heavy upon the people. He's not burdening the people more. He's not requiring more money of them to take care of his needs. He was sensitive instead to their needs. I mean, these people were building a wall, for crying out loud. They're working very hard day in, day out. And so Nehemiah was focused and compassionate on them. God had called Nehemiah to do a job, and his ultimate purpose was not as the governor of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah understood this, and he was faithful in what God had called him to do, not just the promotion that he happened to get while he was there. Nehemiah handled his promotion to governor faithfully and with good character. So we see how he handles a promotion. And may the same be said of us, that we would be able to handle a promotion faithfully and with good character, with the character of Christ. The next challenge that Nehemiah faces is another attack by his old nemesis. It's our three favorite people that keep showing up. They just won't go away. You know, you ever have a story and the bad guy just will not die or will not go away? Somehow they keep managing to show back up. That's these three guys, Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. And this attack came When the wall was almost completed, they are almost done. Can you just leave them alone? And Nehemiah was planning the dedication for the wall. So it's a time when it seems like he can finally relax and all of his troubles are over. But in total, Nehemiah came under attack from these men three times. And the purpose of all three attacks was the same. And it was to discourage the people and stop the project. We have to give them an A-plus for persistence, because even when the wall's almost done, they're still trying to stop the project. But the first attack came disguised as a personal request. And we read about it in verse 2 of chapter 6. And it reads that Samballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Everybody say, Ono. Oh, oh, no. But they thought to do me mischief. Now... At first glance, this seems innocent and harmless. It's a letter. Hey, Nehemiah, come on, let's meet together. Let's talk about this. In fact, it seemed like an answer to prayer. These guys who have been causing so much trouble suddenly want to have a come-to-Jesus meeting. And if Nehemiah had reacted in haste, he probably would have agreed to this meeting, saying, you know, we are having revival The Lord is moving, and even our enemies are trying to make good with us. They're trying, you know, to patch things up and apologize. This is fantastic. And it can be easy for us when we've dealt with opposition for so long to jump at the chance to reconcile with our enemies. And I would say that it's easier to deal with direct opposition than opposition that is disguised as friendship. And we call it passive-aggressive today. And passive-aggressive behavior is difficult to deal with because it makes us feel bad to stand up to the person who is being passive-aggressive because it's not just direct and, you know, direct opposition, the kind of going about it in a sneaky way that makes you feel bad to stand up to them, even if we know it's the right thing to do. Because on the surface, everything sounds okay. Hey, Nehemiah, let's just meet together. Sounds all right on the surface, And we should seek reconciliation. We should always seek. The message of the cross is reconciliation, reconciling the world to himself. The story of Jesus is of him patching things up with humanity. So we should seek reconciliation. But we must also be wise and let God lead us through that healing process, not ourselves. If we try to make a door and a wall and you just run right through it, You might make an effective door, but it's going to be very painful. It's better to let the experts make the door, and then you can walk through once it's done. So let's ask this question of the situation. Why didn't these guys just come to Jerusalem to meet Nehemiah? I mean, it's not like they don't know where he is. He's always on the wall. Nehemiah is busy building the wall. Let's just go and see him and talk to him and see if we can make things right. No, that doesn't happen. So why, if they were so willing to make amends, did they want to draw Nehemiah out by himself? The plain of Ono, everybody say Ono. Ono was located about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was a beautiful place. Again, it seems innocent enough. They're not calling him to a dark back alley somewhere, you know, that you're like, okay, that's sketchy right there. No, it's a beautiful place that they're asking him to come to. But thankfully, Nehemiah wasn't hasty in answering this request. And knowing Nehemiah, he most likely prayed about what his response should be. And God gave him the wisdom and divine insight to protect himself and to respond appropriately. We see his analysis of the situation and his response at the end of verse 2 and going into verse 3 of chapter 6. The end of verse 2 says, But they thought to do me mischief. That's his analysis. These guys don't mean well. They're looking to harm me. Verse 3 says what he did. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah knew that they were seeking an opportunity to harm him, so he refused to meet them. He just says, I'm in the middle of an important project. Why should I stop and come to meet you? And it's a brilliant answer because it's the Jesus method of answering a question with a question. Because obviously, they're not going to answer, well, we want you to meet us so we can kidnap you and kill you. You know, they're not going to respond that way. So their silence answered the question enough because they won't respond to his question. Why should I come down and meet you? Well, we really don't know. Their response spoke louder than their words. However, they send the same message three more times. They don't answer the question. They just keep asking him to come down and meet them. And so in their next attack, when Nehemiah continues to ignore their messages, the enemy up to the ante. Verses 5 to 7 of chapter 6 say this, Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Verse 6, wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, That thou and the Jews think to rebel. You guys are looking to start a revolt. For which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. Verse 7 And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Nehemiah, we've heard all these rumors. We've heard all of this stuff. Now, come on, let's talk about this. An open letter was something like a petition. And the difference between the first messages and this one is that this one was open and read out loud before everyone, kind of like a town crier. Everyone was gathered, and the letter was read in front of all of them. And this letter accuses Nehemiah, of having evil ulterior motives for coming to Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall. They're saying that he wanted to lead a revolution and be the king in Judah. And then they threaten Nehemiah that they're going to tell King Artaxerxes of his plans to revolt. Well, this attack was a rumor, plain and simple. Because notice that the source is never quoted. It's reported among the heathen. Well, everyone is saying, everyone knows that in Jerusalem... Da, 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 da. spin the rest of the rumor, however you want to say it. It's exaggerated, inaccurate, and it was designed to hurt Nehemiah. And the lesson here is that we must be so very, very careful of how we use our words. The Bible says that our tongue is the most unruly member. It goes on to say, if a man can tame and control his tongue, he can master any other discipline because that's the hardest one. We must make sure that we use our words positively and to bring about solutions rather than using them to spread stories or to cause trouble. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says it this way, "...let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers." The New International Version says it this way, "...do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths." but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If your words aren't building people up, if they're not a benefit for those listening, then you shouldn't be saying anything at all is what it's saying. So if you ever find yourself the victim of gossip, remember Nehemiah's response in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 6. In verse 8, Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest. He calmly denied the charges against him. Nope, that's not right. They're ugh, I'm starting over. But thou faintest them out of thine own heart. You've made it up. Nehemiah put the blame where it belonged. This isn't true. You're making it up. Verse 9. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah took his hurt to God. He responded to the rumor. It's not true. You're making it up. And the next thing he did was turn to God and said, Lord, they're doing this to try to weaken our hands and make us afraid. So strengthen my hands that we will finish this project. The final attack comes very quickly afterward in verse 10. And they tried to intimidate Nehemiah with a religious sounding warning. Nothing else works, so let's, try, let's just try being religious and maybe that'll work. Verse 10, we see what they do. Afterward, I came into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, the son of mm-hmm. Hallelujah! who was shut up. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's go to church, Nehemiah, and let us shut the doors of the temple. Why? For they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. Nehemiah, you are in danger. There are people coming to kill you. Let's go to the temple and pray. Sounds like a good idea. They must have had some character insight into Nehemiah. They knew he was a man of prayer. So let's go pray together at the temple because you're in danger. But we see Nehemiah's response in verses 11 to 13. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Verse 12, and lo, I perceived that God had not sent him but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Nehemiah was very discerning of the situation. His immediate response is, I will not go in. Verse 13, therefore was he hired, why, that I should be afraid and do so in sin, that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. In his response, we see, again, his discernment. Nehemiah recognizes immediately, this is not the voice of God, but of his enemies. Notice verse 11, he responds, I will not go in. Should I flee? No, I should not. Somebody like me should not do this. And then in verse 12, he says, and lo, I perceive that God had not sent him. He was very, very sensitive to the spirit of God. And what was God's voice? He recognized it from all his times in prayer. He recognized the voice of God and knew that this was not the voice of God. He also sniffs out the true reason for this suggestion in verse 13. We see his strength and his courage in his response. Nehemiah was the leader of this project, and the people were also subject to threats of physical harm. We talked last week about how Nehemiah dealt with the fears of the people and how he rallied them to fight. They were afraid for their lives. Nehemiah, they're telling us they're going to come and kill us. What are we going to do? We're scared. So then how would it look if he's the one who turns tail and runs away when he's personally threatened? Now they're not threatening a group of people. They're just threatening the leader specifically. You're going to be killed. And that's a recipe to demoralize the rest of your workers. Well, he's telling us to be brave. He took off and was hiding in the temple because he was afraid guys were going to kill him. Why do we have to stand on the wall to try to protect him? The sin would be giving in to intimidation. And that would be given Nehemiah's enemies an evil report that they could spread about him, which was their goal in the first place. But Nehemiah stood strong and refused to yield to the intimidation of the enemy. Remember that persistence stays strong. Nehemiah and his work were at the center of God's plan, so they were invincible. And Nehemiah knew he was sent to Jerusalem for a purpose, and he trusted God to keep him safe as he accomplished that purpose. And finally, after all of these trials and triumphs and joys and frustrations, the wall is finished. And everyone in Jerusalem can let out a huge sigh of relief. In chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elul in 50 and 2 days. Verse 16. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, They were much cast down in their own eyes. They were very disappointed, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. The response of the enemies of the Jews was disappointment and sadness, because Jerusalem was no longer an easy target for their attacks. When you build the walls of your life, the enemy will be disappointed and downcast to see it work, because you're no longer an easy target for an attack. And this verse says, that their enemies realized that someone greater than men was watching out for Jerusalem. And it reminds me of Gamaliel speaking to the Pharisees in Acts about the apostles. It's one of my favorite um, sections of scripture. We actually heard it all day yesterday at quizzing. And Gamaliel says, If this be of men, it will fail. But if not, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. And he's speaking about the early church there. And that's so encouraging to me because we see the church continue, and it's very true. If you fight against it, you find yourself only fighting against God. If it is of men, it will fail. But any project that God is behind, man cannot get in the way of. And the final aspect of Nehemiah's character that I want to look at is his exit from the story. Because how he leaves the story is just as interesting to me as how he enters the story. In the final chapters of Nehemiah, the focus shifts from Nehemiah to Ezra and other leaders in Jerusalem. And this is very practical because Nehemiah couldn't stay in Jerusalem forever. The king wanted him back in Babylon, back at his job. And someone was going to have to continue the work of overseeing the progress in Jerusalem once Nehemiah was gone. The wall was built, but there was still a lot of work to do. And this is an important principle for us all to remember, and that is that no one lives forever. If you can find a way to do it, congratulations, you will be very rich. But as of now, no one will live forever. So what begins with you will most likely end with someone else. Nehemiah knew how to graciously bow out of the scene once his role in the rebuilding of Jerusalem was complete. And this allowed others to fulfill their God-given purpose as well. And that's a lesson all by itself. Because if Nehemiah would have tried to hold on to his position, and he could have tried, he would have been forcing his will, not God's, and choking the life out of someone else's ministry. God can either move with you or in spite of you. And I would rather it be the first option. I would rather have him moving with me. He knows the people that are best suited to each job and he places them where he can use them to the best of their abilities. In the final chapters of Nehemiah, we see a spiritual revival in Jerusalem. The law was brought out and read and it was explained to the people. They had been in captivity for decades. They didn't understand it. They hadn't heard the law. The result was that their hearts were turned to God and they committed to follow God's law. Because Nehemiah knew that physical protection was could only go so far. He had heard of the fall of Jerusalem, and he knew if they were going to be, there was going to be a rebuilding, they were going to have to rebuild the spiritual walls as well in Jerusalem if they were going to be successful. However, it's not Nehemiah who is the face of this re- revival. Instead, it's Ezra, the priest, as it should be. Nehemiah was the governor and the organizer of the service. He had all the details. This is where we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. We're going to sing this song. But he knew when to step back and let someone else show their expertise. Nehemiah knew his own limits. As a scribe and priest, Ezra had copied the books of the law, and he was more familiar with it than Nehemiah was. So Nehemiah had the humility and grace to step into the background when he knew the situation called for someone with more experience. He didn't try to micromanage or be the one who was the only voice to the people. Just someone has to explain the law, okay, between the two of us, Ezra, me and you, you're more qualified, you should do it. Nehemiah knew what his purpose was, and he was secure in what God had called him to do, and that was to build the wall. If God had put any other plans in his heart, he would have adjusted accordingly. But God's plan meant involving other people and transferring leadership to them. And Nehemiah was willing to do that. He didn't try to prolong his tenure as governor. And he didn't try to hold power in Jerusalem with an iron grip. Because that would have been a miserable situation for everyone. Instead, he steps back and lets others be used of God to accomplish their purpose. Nehemiah knew how to give way to his successor, and I've heard over and over in talking with leaders, they say, when you start doing a job, start looking for someone who can replace you, because the simple fact is the job or the position will probably outlive me. If we train people to take our place and continue the work, we build something that will outlast us. The fact is that Nehemiah would always be a valuable resource, no matter where he was. In fact, in the later chapters of Nehemiah, he returns to Jerusalem to correct some spiritual wrongs that had taken root. His wisdom and his character would always be in high demand, and his willingness to step aside probably made it easier for people to come and ask him for his help. Principle is, if you make room for others, they will make room for you. We are building something that will outlast all of us, and that is the kingdom of God. And to do that, we have to bring other people alongside with us. Because of Nehemiah's wisdom, character, and leadership, the people in Jerusalem experienced a great revival and spiritual renewal. And it was Nehemiah's leadership that made this possible. He recognized the physical and spiritual needs of the people and took action to provide for both of those needs. And he was truly a man who was uniquely gifted for his purpose. So let's take a look back at what we've learned about Nehemiah. He was an ordinary man who was used to accomplish an extraordinary goal. God chose him to lead the third group of Jews back to Jerusalem, oversee the building of the wall for the protection of Jerusalem, and begin a spiritual revival. He had three main roles in his life. The first was cupbearer to the king. The second was the builder of the wall. And finally, what we've went over today was the governor of the city of Jerusalem and the province of Judah. And each role showcased his character in a unique way. As a cupbearer, Nehemiah had one of the most important roles in the Babylonian Empire. It was a position of influence and rank, but Nehemiah had a heart for the things of God. He wasn't distracted by Babylon, and he was moved. When he heard of the situation in Jerusalem, when he heard of the needs of the city, he was moved to prayer and to meet the need. And may we also be as sensitive to the needs of others and be moved to do something about it. We see one of the defining character traits of Nehemiah that's emphasized over and over is that he was a man of prayer. He was a prayer warrior. He took his problems to God first. We may take them to God eventually, but Nehemiah took them to God first. There are battles we cannot win and things we can't fix without the help of the Lord. And whether or not I think something is a spiritual battle, taking it to the one who has all power ensures that all of my bases are covered. And I can rest assured that he will work for my good no matter what situation I'm in. Nehemiah approached the Lord in humility, repenting for the sins of the people and claiming the promises that God made to his people. He knew that only God can change the heart of an individual. So he he took his employer and his situation to God and trusted God to do the rest of it. And while he was waiting on God, Nehemiah was planning out this great project. And this shows us another piece of his character. He was a man of faith. We have a picture of powerful, active faith in the life of Nehemiah. He asked God to come through for him, but more importantly, he expected God to come through for him. Nehemiah planned with the assurance that God was going to work out what he had promised. The presence of faith did not mean the absence of organization. Nehemiah was a great planner and organizer. He was able to think through the project and plan all the resources that he would need. But he never lost sight of where his success came from. He knew that this project was the Lord's doing, and he credited all of his successes back to the Lord. The king let me go back to Jerusalem and gave me supplies. Why? Because of the hand of God that was on me. Nehemiah was humble and kept an attitude of gratefulness as God led him through the ups and downs of his monumental project. He was a man of patience. He had to wait four months before he saw any sign of God answering his prayers. He was very, very patient. He goes to Jerusalem. He takes three days and waits. He says, God was putting it in his heart how he should approach the project. Nehemiah wasn't a man to rush forward with no plan or direction. He recognized the value of waiting and listening. Nehemiah was an inspiring leader. And we see this in his actions, interactions with the people of Jerusalem. He always got a response. And it was usually the one that he was trying to get. We see in nehemiah's response to opposition that he was a man of courage and he wouldn't give in to intimidation, it seems like most of his story is him standing up to the three main opponents of the wall being built. whether the threats of the enemy came against the people as a whole or against him personally, he stood firm, took action and trusted God to take care of his people and his project and I think Nehemiah's trust in God is the theme that has stood out to me the most as I've studied his life. It's very inspiring to me that this man who had so much to worry about, so many problems, so many struggles, he was confident to leave it at God's feet. It's also very challenging to me because am I leaving my problems? and my Yes, I say, Lord, will you help me with this? But then do I take my problems and my cares back and try to work it out myself? Or do I truly leave it? at the feet of God, and trust him to do what only he can do. So it becomes my goal. Lord, help me to trust you, to see you like Nehemiah saw you. Obviously, he knew God very well. They had a very good relationship. So since he could see him clearly, he knew who could be trusted with his life. So if you would stand with me, let's take a moment to pray that God would seal these character lessons that are listed up here to seal these in our hearts, that he would build us the way he built Nehemiah, the way Nehemiah built the wall, one brick at a time, that he would build our characters one brick at a time to be reflections of him and to be what he wants us to be. Would you pray with me?